Welcome to the SDA Housing Podcast, brought to you by NDIS Property Australia. Before starting this episode, we need to provide a general disclaimer. Information contained in this podcast is general in nature only. It does not take into account the objectives, financial situation or needs of any particular person. You need to consider your financial situation and needs before making any decisions based on the information in this podcast. And you should consider seeking independent and professional advice for your personal circumstances. All right, let's begin. Hello, everybody. My name is Min, and I'm your host today with my two colleagues, Joshua and Debbie, in the office of NDIS Property Australia, the SDA Housing Podcast, where we are talking about various new topics in the SDA market. Debbie, welcome today. Josh, welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. Debbie, please introduce our new guest speaker who is new to our team. Yes, Josh, welcome to the team. Josh has joined us recently. He is a marketing and sales support. Uh, so he is, uh, he's doing a fantastic job, picked up very quickly, uh, understanding of specialist disability combination and what we do here. Uh, he is, uh, talking to people, calling in, getting to, uh, understand more about what investors are after. He's also helping us out here in the office with our marketing materials and everything involved in that side of things as well. I think one of the um, important things today uh, to our listeners is to introduce who Josh is. But um, we gave him a task a couple of days ago, and that was to read a new article released by the Housing Hub, uh, a division of the Summer Foundation, one of the biggest advocates in SDA in Australia. And uh, the article released only in February was is called Reimagining Shared Housing and Living. Now, we'll obviously have this document uh, posted as a link in the description of this podcast to listen to, and Erin, uh, De- uh, our podcast manager, will arrange for that. But um, I wanted to ask Josh, Josh, what are your thoughts on this document that you've been reading uh, and, and absorbing, I guess, yeah? I think it's pretty interesting. I, I'm, it's pretty vague in, in some areas, but um, I think the the main point of it is sort of to um, to allow for um, for better co- uh, collaboration between uh, organisations like us and NDIS providers and um, and the shared ha- shared houses and shared living spaces, um, just so that people don't get uh, people have more of a choice as to how they um, how they live and and in what conditions they live. Cool. Now, Debbie. Why is this an important? I mean, we've never t- covered this topic before, um, housing, uh, group houses before. No, no, we haven't. As, as, an, as a standalone episode. And can you please just educate our new uh, colleague in the office here why house, group houses are a bit of a, a negative taint in the industry, in the SDA market, please? Yeah. Well, I mean, in the past, group houses always referred to the institutional style, multiple tenant group houses that did not allow any kind of um, freedom or choice for the tenants themselves. Uh, It also has been a situation in a lot of the group homes where tenants have been subject to all sorts of different discrimination or abuse. Uh, So basically, they have a pretty bad name in the industry. Unfortunately, a lot of the group homes are still part of the specialist disability accommodation system. So those uh, homes are included in the SDA stats and data 
being legacy homes. As being legacy homes, yeah, and, and existing homes for the less than five tenant old style homes. So we know that the legacy homes are in each state within 10 years of SDA being rolled out, the legacy homes will cease to get any more funding in terms of the SDA payments. Uh, so the people that are living in these homes are definitely going to have to move somewhere else or what has been happening, what we see now is providers looking to update these properties to make them qualify for the the new SDA funding that's still going to be for group homes. So no more than five tenants, but uh, it is something that is of concern in the industry. So Doris, just so you know, on the income spreadsheet of the SDA spreadsheet, the purple in the purple book, it, it will say group homes up to five participants. Yeah. That's the new standard. But in the past, and now let me rephrase this. Imagine this scenario, Josh. You go out for a 30, 40 minute drive out in the suburbs and you see a big eight bedroom house. It's not brick, it's just, you know, it's, it's an old shabby 30 year old house, big massive one, and there's eight, seven, eight bedrooms in there. It's one carer room office and there's seven or eight participants, one or two maybe in wheelchairs, right? Some may have psychosocial issues. It's like a big massive boarding house, but the house isn't, isn't designed for wheelchairs or designed for robust participants. It's just a big, huge, massive boarding house for participants. Imagine if you're one of those people who are living in a massive environment like that and no one knows who's who. People are stealing your food in the fridge. People are knocking on your door. You hear someone crying. People making people making noises, talking, to, whatever it is. I mean, that's not an environment. It may have been, say, 20, 30 years ago, but that's not the standard that we want to see, that the industry, the NDIS want to see today. So there is a sort of a cap of maybe five-ish? Five, yeah. So a, a house in the new pricing agreement is for two or three tenants. A group home is for four or maximum five tenants. Yes. So with those legacy homes, Debbie, they're being phased out, as we've mentioned so many times before, uh, and that's the purpose why we're talking about this as a standalone topic today. Now, over to you, Josh. Continue on about what have you, what have you found in, in this document that you're – you were seeing yeah, the key the key findings, I guess. Yeah. Well, I think to I think to add on that, I think to add on that, uh, I think even in this new proposed, um, in what they're talking about in this document, I think they're still talking about six people in a group home. Um, but I think they're talking about having more people um, living together who are in similar circumstances, mm. so that they're not living um, a worse in worse conditions than um, perhaps they um, they need to live in. Um, so let me read this this line here on page one. It says, in the key findings, we cannot afford to recreate or maintain institutions for people with disability in which the group of the group mindset restricts and hinders an individual's right to autonomy, flexibility, and self-determination. Yeah. So freedom. Yeah. Yeah. Freedom and how they want to live their, their own life. Yeah. Yeah. So as you were saying, continue on. Yeah. Well, I think, um, I think the, the whole point of this document is to, start getting people to think about putting in uh, frameworks that are aimed at making sure that these people in these homes are being treated better, for one, and are living a lot with a lot more freedom and they have a lot more choice about how they live. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think, I think it's obviously a great thing because, um, as you said, a lot of people have been abused or, or 
whatever in these homes. And um, I think that's the main the main reason as to why uh, these homes don't work in the current climate. So, Debbie, on page two there, this, uh, there's a part called recommendations. Can you read out those six points, please? And then we'll, we'll cover them individually after that. So the recommendations have got uh, for better data, mm-hmm. for funding allocation, for better living design, better governance models, provider capability, and collaboration. So let's talk about the first one, better data. Josh, you want to take us through that? Page two there? Page two. Yes, there's better data. Uh, so yeah, I think it's um, I think it's mainly uh, aimed at you know collecting data um, to make sure you know it well documents um, the the quality of life that uh, the tenants have, and that is aimed at you know making sure that the um, you know they have choice in in um, where they live mm-hmm. and um, making sure that they don't yeah again they don't um, live in in poor poor co- with poor quality care. Um, you know, with other tenants who perhaps need more care, so they, mm-hmm. yeah, that obviously leads to their detriment. Yeah, and also makes sure, yeah. Debbie, the, the point there says characteristics and features of existing and legacy stock in the NDS data that we see in the quarterly reports. It doesn't really give much information about the the, the characteristics of the existing data. And the- it gives no information whatsoever about that. We don't know what they're like. We don't know how many tenants. We know that there's six or more. Mm. That's basically the only information we have. They're all uh, I think we can maybe break them down if they are designated as high physical support or, or a different design type. Mm. But you've got to remember that these are not going to be the same classifications as new build yeah, yeah. design types. Will. So obviously this point is very clear. We need better data f- to be provided to, to show what's out there Absolutely. and what's being phased out. That's obvious. Josh, next point. Uh, so yeah, funding allocation. So a complete and initial review of housing and support needs and preferences and likely SDA funding eligibility, um, so that would you know that, that would enable tenants to explore and make more and, and make an informed choice about alternative housing and support options, and enable providers to more accurately forecast the size of the investment needed to modernise group homes and meet tenant demand. So in in our in our quarter reports, Debbie, and some other data we see constantly, it always we look at the data like Parramatta or, or where it is, and it shows this is the number of participants who are SDA funded in an area. And then who are actually in an SDA, which is another number, and then looking. Yeah. Now, this is where it comes in. The legacy people who are in legacy group homes, they're looking, but the number's still very small, as we've seen. And the primary reason, Debbie, why there's only a small number who are looking is because? They don't, a lot of these participants don't even know about SDA. They don't understand it. They are not aware of it. Their families may not be aware of it. Even to a degree, their carers may not be aware of what SDA really is. Mm. So we know that there are a lot of people out there who will be eligible for this. They're not coming into the system yet because they don't know about it and they don't know that they should be applying for it. The system is composed of brand, a lot of brand new businesses as silk care providers. And they're managing, and I'll be honest, I'm, I'll be on the record here, they're managing a house or an old property and they're getting paid by the hour to manage these people, right? If they start losing participants in their group home, legacy homes, their, their revenue drops. So, you know, providers aren't necessarily in a rush to push their participants out of a group home, legacy home into an SDA house because then they lose the, they lose their customers. If they're pushing everyone out of their, their group homes, there's less customers in the house that they're, they're currently managing, they make less money. Less profit on the dollar. 
So it is, this is this is a big issue. This is a commercial matter, yeah. And you know, it is what it is. You know, why would a provider get rid of their, their customers and lose them to another provider? They wouldn't do it. Yeah, but as you know, it's up it's up to families uh, and the community to make make their their loved ones who are disabled to be more aware of their options. Because in here it says in point C here, Josh, can you read point C in this fun, funding allocation topic? Uh, explore alternative social, public, and private options for the minority of people who are currently living in the group homes but do not qualify for SDA yep, payments. There you go. So moving into a sil- a proper brand new sill home being managed by a by a, by a provider with three or four people only living in an ILO environment, which is a, a duplex or, or, or a one bedroom, two bedroom unit by themselves. All right. So these are, these are other options that they can get out of their group home to live in if they don't qualify for SDA. Next one, Josh, number three. Number three, which I think is pretty important to, um, to what we know, our living design, our specialist exploration and design capabilities are required to support people with disability to exercise genuine choice in designing their preferred living arrangement and coordinate the suite of services needed to construct, maintain and evolve their living arrangements. Collate and publish what is known about this specialty to improve understanding and quality of living design services across the sector. Debbie, any comments there? Uh, I guess this comes down to where we, in an ideal SDA world, we would be able to develop and design these houses in collaboration with the participants that are going to be living in them. Not always that easy to to bring this all together, but uh, if we need to find ways of making that more of a standard than an exception. Yep. Next one, Josh. Uh, governance models. Develop independent governance models for shared living to facilif- facilitate supported and collective tenant-led decision-making in shared living arrange- arrangements, ensuring tenant control over how they live, with who, how they are supported, and what happens in their home. This goes back to the words choice and control. Yeah, totally. There's nothing more to it than that. Next one, Josh. Uh, provider capability. This is a very important one. Let's, let's go through it. There's three parts here. A subcategory, sorry. Subcategory is A, B, and C. A is human-centric services. B is social innovation and experimentation. And C is support workforce. Josh, first one. So A are human-centric services. Develop provider capabilities to operationalize applied ethics frameworks that translate human rights principles into human-centered products and services. Uh, Develop provider commitment to the independent collection of social impact measurement and benchmark data and insights to improve and evolve services. It sounds a little complicated, doesn't it, Debbie? Yeah, yeah, I'm trying to... At the end of the day, the the subtitle says it all. Human-centric services. Services which are humane uh, are for the... Centred around the person, or centred around the participant. Yeah. And the providers. Yeah. So the provider has to create services which are relevant towards their participants. That's what human-centric services is all about. And we just need, you know, we need providers to be, yes, they have to be commercial. Yes, we know that, profitable. But they also need to be meeting the needs of the, of the participants, and that's, and that's it. Yeah, very much apply ethics frameworks. It's all about the ethics yep. of what they're doing. Cool. Next one, Josh. Uh, social innovation and experimentation. Develop necessary conditions for, so- for social innovation within providers, including harnessing lived experience and research, fostering ideation, uh, prioritization and development capabilities, and reinforcing effective risk and investment appetites. Uh, develop tests and learning cultures in which providers can take a lean and 
iterative approach to building on new ideas and align NDIA and NDIS quality and safeguards commission policies and practices with the need to maintain safe and healthy standards without allowing compliance to stifle innovation. So, Debbie, what does this social innovation experimentation summary mean? I mean, I'm confused here with all, all these, this, this jargon. Uh, well, I'm I'm looking at the words there, lived experience, which is something that we we've spoken about a bit more. We've spoken to people with lived experience, and I guess it's all about involving the participants in the innovation of what's needed to develop the housing that they want and need that will give them the choice. Building new ideas. Remember this whole article was about the group housing there's a there's a place for it as long as there are new ideas and you know uh, human-centric services i guess so as long as as they're implementing new ideas within this group home environment to make life better for them that's the key thing here so experimentation innovation they're the key words there next one a big a very important topic this one next one here support workforce Invest in the capability of support workers to take a coaching approach to support provision, building capacity of people to live independently rather than taking charge and doing for people with disability. And invest in the capability of support workers to facilitate tenant-led decisions rather than assume the role of decision maker on a tenant's behalf. That is all about encouraging and having the, the facilities for the participants to be able to do more for themselves, to have more independence. Uh, no, I disagree, Debbie. Support the workforce. To support the tenants to have more independence, to be able to do more things on their own. Yes, 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 yes. Yes, I, I agree. Uh, I, I, as Josh is reading that, I, my mind's thinking off on a tangent about some words my good friend Sean said to me a long time ago, and that was, if you want your staff to improve and and think for themselves, which is in what this is saying, empower them. So rather than, a, he said to me, if a staff member comes up to me and asks a question, rather than give them the answer, say to them, well, what would you do if you in my shoes? Make them think like that. So um, they're saying support the workforce, the support workers, to encourage them to to take an active role, a coaching approach in the provision of support to the participants. Because, and uh, I'm, I'm going to go off track here a little bit, because... There's a big issue in the marketplace. It was I had an email this morning from DSC, um, just a constant weekly email, saying how providers lose turnover of staff so easily. Support workers, they get they they training, they they teach, they 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 teach their support workers, they provide support to participants, and then they leave, and they kept create their own business and compete against their ex employer and steal the steal the participants, yes. the clients. So. What it's saying is support the workforce and support workers to be more empowered to deliver service and, and care for these participants. Don't, I know it's hard for me to say being an outsider, but don't just clock on, clock off and move on. You know, these are real human beings here who are disabled and, and have no, no... And I'd imagine too as a provider, as a support worker, to, to see a, a client in your care learn and, and become more independent must be really empowering yes. and, and really worthwhile part of your job. Exactly. Moving on, number six. This is about collaboration. Um, commit to structured sharing and review practices as a sector in which providers can learn and adapt in practical, additive ways. Uh, create more opportunities for cross-pollination between people and organizations with diverse perspectives. This should include large service providers, small service providers, government 
and industry strategists and influencers, as well as perspectives beyond the disability sector, including legal, social financing, and strategy from across social, community, and human services. Mm -hmm. Publish findings from experimentation projects in disability housing to encourage industry-wide learning and innovation. Set new benchmarks and expectations for shared housing and living that supports tenants to transition away from traditional group homes as they become obsolete. Yep. So, you know, the key word here is collaboration. Working with other organizations, sharing sharing information, sharing data, sharing their learned experiences in running their business, in working with participants, and particularly in this scenario here being group homes, because group homes are being phased out in the coming years. Uh, as Debbie said, there was a 10-year ten ten time frame. From when the NDIS began? Yeah, so every state, the NDIS, the, the SDA rolled out at a different period. For example, in WA, which was the last state to bring it in, it only rolled out the end of 2021. So in WA, it'll be the end of 2031 that group homes must, will, will no longer be funded. And, and, and obviously earlier time periods. So Queensland, Victoria, and New Wales is four years in, so we've got six years yeah, left there. Yeah. So the, the reality is, as more and more, and by the way, the pipeline of SDAs being built around Australia is around about five or 6,000 at the moment, right? As more and more of these properties become available for completion, then you'll see more civil provi care providers working with SDA providers in collaboration to move them out of group homes and into the SIL homes, ILL homes, or the SDA homes. So that's where we want to see more collaboration with all the providers out there in the marketplace. I guess that's important. But now going back to this topic here, being group homes, this whole article. So, Josh, I mean, you've read the whole article back to front. I would like to ask you a question: Is this article basically saying there's a place for group homes, and if you do it right, these are the recommendations, and this is how you do it? They're not saying don't don't have group homes. I'm saying while it, while it's in, while it's in place in the marketplace right now, we still use it, and we should refine our operation. Uh, that's what they're saying, aren't they? Yeah, I think so. I think they're saying that we. Um so we need to start working sort of together in creating these frameworks um, to make sure that people um, are treated well, um, have independence and choice to where they live. So yeah, I think definitely that they're, they're implying that with with yeah good framework that it's definitely viable. Uh, but you know whether that's to be seen, we will we'll find out. But and now I want to I want to test Josh's knowledge here. So Debbie, that page there, page ten. Josh, you can look cannot look at it. So Josh. From your short training so far in our in our company, how many people in how many numbers of people in Australia are currently SDA funded? Do you remember? Uh, I, I have a guess, but I wouldn't know exactly. Okay, no worry about it. Twenty one thousand. So of the twenty one thousand, only do you know how many of them are living in actual brand new SDAs? I just did the data. I just did the data as well. It's fine to land it. No, I can't remember. I think. Dude, what's what's your number in your head? Living in new build SDAs is probably around eight. I would have said eleven. That was. Uh, I think it's six or seven. Six or seven thousand people living in SDA. We got, we got about four, four and a half thousand new build SDAs. Times two is eight thousand. Yeah. Yep. So about seven and a half thousand are living in an SDA right now, which means twenty-one thousand minus seven and a half, or eight, is thirteen thousand. So those thirteen thousand are living in these group homes right here. Yeah. Right. But they are not living in a fit-for-purpose. A group home is not fit-for-purpose. No. And it doesn't give choice and control. So in theory, if there were 
If there were 7,000 more brand new builds right now, they'd all be moving out to move into those brand new ones, but they're not because there's nothing built yet for, for their needs in the area. Hence the reason why the group homes are, are still there. So there's a place for them, but not for much longer. That's the point. And still, remember, even in those group homes, of, use eight, for example, eight people in a group home, not all eight of them are actually going to be SDA funded. So maybe only one of them. So here's the question, where will those other seven move to once this is phased out? They've got to go somewhere, and they don't qualify for SDA. That's where the SIL homes are coming to play, and the ILO homes. But Debbie, that page 10 there, what was the number there? Places in dwellings for one to three residents, places in dwellings for four to five, and places in sort of six plus residents. These are the um, supply of SDA as of September 22, Debbie. Yeah, so 8,300. Places in residence, one to three, in dwellings with one to three resident places. In larger dwellings for four to five residents, 10,000 places. These are legacy. We count the legacy, the legacy numbers there, so existing. Okay. So back to the, yeah, places in dwellings for one to three residents, uh, nothing in legacy. Yep. Places in dwellings of four to five residents, nothing in legacy place. Existing existing, there, Debbie, existing. Existing is 8,000. What's the definition of existing? Existing is a property that is not a group, necessarily a group. And not SDA. It's sort of in between the two. It's Yeah, it does come into the SDA funding, but it's not a new build. It's not going to necessarily get defunded. I My understanding is that it does meet basic SDA guidelines, but I think a lot of the times it might be someone's own home, that they've had renovations done to enable them to live in that home. So it's not a new build SDA dwelling. I'll give you a different example, a different definition of existing. So if you buy a SDA house today and it runs for its full life of 20 years, after 20 years is over, it becomes existing. So that's what an existing means. So if you can go back to the current existing, I mean, it's not necessarily saying 20 years old or it was SDA, but it's it's in between the two, group home legacy and SDA. Yeah. Somewhere in the so, yeah, looking at this, there are none in the places for dwellings for six-plus residents, they are all legacy. So you don't have any existing homes that are group homes, six six or more. Uh, so that is the difference. So the existing ones that are still going to remain as being funded are not the larger institutional style group homes. Okay, I think we might leave it there. This, we could really have this as a two-hour conversation, but we won't. This is more of a short snapshot summary of the of this article, being reimagined shared housing and living, workshop findings and recommendations as of February 23 by the Summer Foundation Housing Hub. We'll have this article uh, available as a download. Josh, a- any final words from you of having read through the whole document? What's your impression of the whole thing? I think you've got to be – I think one of the main points for me is investing um, in your workers. I think they're the ones who provide the care. And mm. um, if you can get the places uh, that are more designed to, to, to suit the needs of you know, a group of people, if, if, if you get the workers that can help provide that, that care, I think that can go a long way. But I, I also think – if you get workers who you know perhaps don't can you don't invest in your workers, I think that's where it all falls for me. To anyone listening out there who is a service provider around Australia, and you are, and you do have a group home or group homes in your portfolio of service, 
and where whereby your participants are living uh, under your care. We hope you can read and absorb this information from the Housing Hub, which are giving ideas uh, and direction and advice to providers to improve the the living conditions of participants in your care in a group home. Because while it's still in operation and not phased out yet, and while there's lack of SDAs out there, we understand that you as a service provider may not be in the SDA properly market as a service provider, and you're, you as a care provider, being a still business, uh, your job is to look after participants, and you will take what, what is out there um, to manage your business. And, your- and I guess it's important to understand that you are providing a, a very important service for those participants that cannot yet move into SDA or or have got, um, obviously not SDA funded, but haven't got other alternatives as yet. Uh, but it's really imperative to understand the whole NDIS choice and control. You know, the, the participants do need to have that independence and, you know, we all need to work together to uh, and assist the care providers, the SIL providers, to be able to offer that. Anyway, thank you so much, everyone. Appreciate it. Yep. Okay. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please make sure you are subscribed and following us so you can keep in the loop with all of our upcoming episodes. We would really appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star rating, a written review, and to share this podcast with those that could benefit. Until next time, catch you on the next episode. 